Chapter Two of the Monitor and the Merrimack Both Sides of the Story by John Warden. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Jeffrey Smith, New Orleans, Louisiana. Chapter Two The Merrimack and the Monitor. Told by H. Ashton Ramsey, Major CSA, Chief Engineer of the Merrimack. The Merrimack was built in 1856 as a full-rigged war frigate of 3,100 tons burden with auxiliary steam power to be used only in case of headwinds. She was a hybrid from her birth, marking the transition from sails to steam as well as from wooden ships to ironclads. I became her second assistant engineer in Panama Bay in 1859, cruising in her around the Horn and back to Norfolk. Her chief engineer was Alban C. Steimers. Little did we dream that he was to be the right-hand man of Ericsson in the construction of the Monitor, while I was to hold a similar post in the conversion of our own ship into an ironclad, or that, in less than a year and a half we would be seeking to destroy each other he as chief engineer of the monitor and i in the corresponding position on the merrimack in the harbor of rio on our return voyage we met the congress and as we sailed away after coaling she fired a friendly salute and cheered us and we responded with a will when the two ships next met, it was in one of the deadliest combats of naval history. The machinery of the Merrimack was condemned, and she went out of commission on our return. She was still at Norfolk when the war broke out, and was set on fire by the Federals when Norfolk was evacuated. Some of the workmen in the Navy Yard scuttled and sank her, thus putting out the flames. When she was raised by the Confederates, she was nothing but a burned and blackened hulk. Her charred upper works were cut away, and in the center a casement shield 180 feet long was built of pitch pine and oak, two feet thick. This was covered with iron plates, one to two inches thick and eight inches wide, bolted over each other and through and through the woodwork, giving a protective armor four inches in thickness. The shield sloped at an angle of about 36 degrees and was covered with an iron grating that served as an upper deck. For fifty feet forward and aft, her decks were submerged below the water, and the prow was shod with an iron beak to receive the impact when ramming. Even naval officers were skeptical as to the result. The plates were rolled at the Tredegar Mills at Richmond, and arrived so slowly that we were nearly a year in finishing her. We could have rolled them at Norfolk and built four Merrimacks in that time had the South understood the importance of a navy at the outbreak of the war. I remember that my old friend and comrade, Captain Charles McIntosh, while awaiting orders, used to come over and stand on the granite curbing of the dock to watch the work as it crawled along. Goodbye, Ramsay, he said, sadly, on the eve of starting to command a ram at New Orleans. 
i shall never see you again she will prove your coffin a short time afterward the poor fellow had both legs shot from under him and died almost immediately rifled guns were just coming into use and lieutenant brooke who designed the merrimac considered the question of having some of her guns rifled how to procure such cannon was not easily discovered as we had no foundries in the south there were many cast-iron cannon that had fallen into our hands at norfolk and he conceived the idea of turning some of this ordnance into rifles in order to enable them to stand the additional bursting strain we forged wrought iron bands and shrank them over the chambers and we devised a special tool for rifling the bore of the guns they gave effective service many details remained uncompleted when we were at last floated out of dry dock but there was great pressure for us to make some demonstration that might serve to check mcclellan in his advance up the peninsula the ship was still full of workmen hurrying her to completion when commodore franklin buchanan arrived from richmond one march morning and ordered everyone out of the ship except her crew of three hundred and fifty men which had been hastily drilled on shore in the management of the big guns and directed executive officer jones to prepare to sail at once at that time nothing was known of our destination all we knew was that we were off at last buchanan sent for me the veteran sailor the beau ideal of a naval officer of the old school with his tall form harsh features and clear piercing eyes was pacing the deck with a stride i found it difficult to match although he was then over sixty and i but twenty-four ramsay he asked what would happen to your engines and boilers if there should be a collision they are braced tight i assured him though the boilers stand fourteen feet they are so securely fastened that no collision could budge them i am going to ram the cumberland said my commander i'm told she has the new rifled guns the only ones in their whole fleet we have cause to fear the moment we are in the roads i'm going to make right for her and ram her how about your engines they were in bad shape in the old ship i understand can we rely on them should they be tested by a trial trip she will have to travel some ten miles down the river before we get to the roads i said if any trouble develops i'll report it i think that will be sufficient trial trip i watched the machinery carefully as we sped down the elizabeth river and soon satisfied myself that all was well then i went on deck how fast is she going do you think i asked one of the pilots eight or nine knots an hour he replied making a rapid calculation from objects ashore the merrimac as an ironclad was faster under steam than she had ever been before with her top hamper of masts and sails i presented myself to the commodore the machinery is all right sir i assured him 
across the river at newport news gleamed the batteries and white tents of the federal camp and the vessels of the fleet blockading the mouth of the james chief among them the congress and the cumberland tall and stately with every line and spar clearly defined against the blue march sky their decks and ports bristling with guns while the rigging of the cumberland was gay with the red white and blue of sailors garments hung out to dry as we rounded into view the white-winged sailing craft that sprinkled the bay and long lines of tugs and small boats scurried to the far shore like chickens on the approach of a hovering hawk they had seen our black hulk which looked like the roof of a barn afloat suddenly huge volumes of smoke began to pour from the funnels of the frigates minnesota and roanoke at old point they had seen us too and were getting up steam bright colored signal flags were run up and down the masts of all the ships of the federal fleet the congress shook out her topsails down came the clothesline on the cumberland and boats were lowered and dropped astern our crew was summoned to the gun deck and buchanan addressed us sailors in a few minutes you will have the long looked-for opportunity of showing your devotion to our cause remember that you are about to strike for your country and your homes the confederacy expects every man to do his duty beat to quarters every terse burning word is engraved on my memory though fifty years have passed since they were spoken just as he had finished the mess caterer touched my elbow and whispered better get your lunch now mr ramsay it will be your last chance the galley fires must be put out when the magazines are opened on my way i saw assistant surgeon garnett at a table laying out lint and surgical implements i had no appetite and merely tasted some cold tongue and a cup of coffee passing along the gun deck i saw the pale and determined countenances of the guns crews as they stood motionless at their posts with set lips unsmiling contrasting with the careless expression of sailors when practised at fighting quarters on a man-of-war this was the real thing as we approached the federal ships we were met by a veritable storm of shells which must have sunk any ship then afloat except the merrimac they struck our sloping sides were deflected upward to burst harmlessly in the air or rolled down and fell hissing into the water dashing the spray up into our ports as we drew nearer the cumberland above the roar of battle rang the voice of buchanan do you surrender never retorted the gallant morris the crux of what followed was down in the engine room two gongs the signal to stop were quickly followed by three the signal to reverse there was an ominous pause then a crash shaking us all off our feet the engines labored the vessel was shaken in every fiber our bow was visibly depressed we seemed to be bearing down with a weight on our prow 
thud 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 came the rain of shot on our shield from the double-decked battery of the congress there was a terrible crash in the fire-room for a moment we thought one of the boilers had burst no it was the explosion of a shell in our stack was anyone hit no thank god the firemen had been warned to keep away from the uptake so the fragments of shell fell harmlessly on the iron floor plates we had rushed on the doomed ship relentless as fate crashing through her barricade of heavy spars and torpedo fenders striking her below her starboard forechains and crushing far into her for a moment the whole weight of her hung on our prow and threatened to carry us down with her the return wave of the collision curling up into our bow port the cumberland began to sink slowly bow first but continued to fight desperately for the forty minutes that elapsed after her doom was sealed while we were engaged with both the cumberland and the congress being right between them we had left our cast-iron beak in the side of the cumberland like the wasp we could sting but once leaving it in the wound our smokestack was riddled our flag was shot down several times and was finally secured to a rent in the stack on our gun deck the men were fighting like demons there was no thought or time for the wounded and dying as they tugged away at their guns training and sighting their pieces while the orders rang out sponge load fire the muzzle of our gun has been shot away cried one of the gunners no matter keep on loading and firing do the best you can with it replied lieutenant jones keep away from the side ports don't lean against the shield look out for the sharpshooters rang the warnings some of our men who failed to heed them and leaned against the shield were stunned and carried below bleeding at the ears all were full of courage and worked with a will they were so begrimed with powder that they looked like negroes pass along the cartridges more powder a shell for number six a wet wad for the hot shot gun put out that pipe and don't light it again on peril of your life such were the directions and commands issued like clockwork amid the confusion of battle our executive officer seemed to be in a dozen places at once this gives some faint notion of the scene passing behind our grim iron casement which to the beholders without seemed a machine of destruction human hearts were beating and bleeding there human lives were being sacrificed pain death wounds glory that was the sum of it on the doomed ship cumberland the battle raged with equal fury the sanded deck was red and slippery with blood delirium seized the crew they stripped to their trousers kicked off their shoes tied handkerchiefs about their heads and fought and cheered as their ship sank beneath their feet then the order came all save who can there was a scramble for the spar deck and a rush overboard 
the ship listed the after pivot gun broke loose and rushed down the decline like a furious animal rolling over a man as it bounded overboard leaving a mass of mangled flesh on deck we now turned to the congress which had tried to escape but had grounded and the battle raged once more broadside upon broadside delivered at close range the merrimac working closer all the time with her bow pointed as if to ram the congress a shell from lieutenant wood's gun sped through their line of powder passers not only cutting down the men but exploding the powder buckets in their hands spreading death and destruction and setting fire to the ship at last came the order cease firing the congress has surrendered someone cried look out of the port see she has run up white flags the officers are waving their handkerchiefs at this several of the officers started to leave their posts and rush on deck but lieutenant jones in his stentorian voice sang out stand by your guns and lieutenants be ready to resume firing at the word see that your guns are well supplied with ammunition during the lull dr garnett see how those poor fellows yonder are coming on mr littlepage tell paymaster semple to have a care of the berth deck and use every precaution against fire mr hasker call away the cutter's crew and have them in readiness mr lindsay to the carpenter sound the well examine the forehold and report if you find anything wrong such was catsby a p r jones the executive officer of the merrimac when it was fully evident that there was to be a suspension of hostilities and these details had all been attended to several of the officers went to stand beside buchanan on the upper grating the whole scene was changed a pall of black smoke hung about the ships and obscured the clean-cut outlines of the shore down the river were the three frigates st lawrence roanoke and minnesota also enveloped in the clouds of battle that now and then reflected the crimson lightnings of the god of war the masts of the cumberland were protruding above the water the congress presented a terrible scene of carnage the gunboats Beaufort and Raleigh were signaled to take off the wounded and fire the ship. They were driven away by sharpshooters on shore, who suddenly turned their fire on us, notwithstanding the white flag of the Congress. Buchanan fell, severely wounded in the groin. As he was being carried below, he said to Executive Officer Jones, plug hot shot into her and don't leave her until she's afire they must look after their own wounded since they won't let us a characteristic command when it is remembered that his own brother mckean buchanan was paymaster of the congress and might have been numbered among the wounded we had kept two furnaces for the purpose of heating shot they were rolled into the flames on a grating rolled out into iron buckets hoisted to the gun deck and rolled into the guns which had been prepared with wads of wet hemp then the gun would be touched off quickly and the shot sent on its errand of destruction leaving the congress wrapped in sheets of flame we made for the three other frigates 
the St. Lawrence and Roanoke had run aground, but were pulled off by tugs and made their escape. The Minnesota was not so fortunate, but we drew 23 feet of water and could not get near enough to destroy her, while our guns could not be elevated owing to the narrow embrasures, and their range was only a mile. So we made for our moorings at Sewell's Point. All the evening we stood on deck watching the brilliant display of the burning ship every part of her was on fire at the same time the red-tongued flames running up shrouds masts and stays and extending out to the yard-arms she stood in bold relief against the black background lighting up the roads and reflecting her lurid lights on the bosom of the now placid and hushed waters every now and then the flames would reach one of the loaded cannon and a shell would hiss at random through the darkness about midnight came the grand finale the magazines exploded shooting up a huge column of firebrands hundreds of feet in the air and then the burning hulk burst asunder and melted into the waters while the calm night spread her sable mantle over hampton roads the monitor arrived during the evening and anchored under the stern of the minnesota her lighter draft enabling her to do so without danger to us the ensuing engagement was in the nature of a surprise if we had known we were to meet her we would have at least been supplied with solid shot for our rifled guns we might even have thought best to wait until our iron beak lost in the side of the cumberland could be replaced buchanan was incapacitated by his wound and the command devolved upon lieutenant jones we left our anchorage shortly before eight o'clock next morning and steamed across and upstream toward the minnesota thinking to make short work of her and soon return with her colors trailing under ours we approached her slowly feeling our way cautiously along the edge of the channel when suddenly to our astonishment a black object that looked like the historic description a barrel head afloat with a cheese box on top of it moved slowly out from under the minnesota and boldly confronted us it must be confessed that both ships were queer-looking craft as grotesque to the eyes of the men of sixty-two as they would appear to those of the present generation and now the great fight was on a fight the like of which the world had never seen with the battle of yesterday old methods had passed away and with them the experience of a thousand years of battle and of breeze was brought to naught we hovered about each other in spirals gradually contracting the circuits until we were within point-blank range but our shell glanced from the monitor's turret just as hers did from our sloping sides for two hours the cannonade continued without perceptible damage to either of the combatants on our gun deck all was bustle smoke grimy figures and stern commands while down in the engine and boiler rooms the sixteen furnaces were belching out fire and smoke and the firemen standing in front of them like so many gladiators 
tugged away with devil's claw and slice bar inducing by their exertions more and more intense combustion and heat the noise of the cracking roaring fires escaping steam and the loud and labored pulsations of the engines together with the roar of the battle above and the thud and vibration of the huge masses of iron which were hurled against us produced a scene and sound to be compared only with the poet's picture of the lower regions and then an accident occurred that threatened our utter destruction we stuck fast aground on a sandbar. Our situation was critical. The monitor could, at her leisure, come close up to us and yet be out of our reach, owing to our inability to deflect our guns. In she came and began to sound every chink in our armor, every one but that which was actually vulnerable had she known it the coal consumption of the two days fight had lightened our prow until our unprotected submerged deck was almost awash the armor on our sides below the water line had been extended but about three feet owing to our hasty departure before the work was finished lightened as we were these exposed portions rendered us no longer an ironclad and the monitor might have pierced us between wind and water had she depressed her guns fearing that she might discover our vulnerable heel of achilles we had to take all chances we lashed down the safety valves heaped quick burning combustibles into the already raging fires and brought the boilers to a pressure that would have been unsafe under ordinary circumstances the propeller churned the mud and water furiously but the ship did not stir we piled on oiled cotton waste splints of wood anything that would burn faster than coal it seemed impossible that the boilers could stand the pressure we were crowding upon them just as we were beginning to despair there was a perceptible movement and the merrimac slowly dragged herself off the shoal by main strength we were saved before our adversary saw that we were again afloat we made a dash for her catching her quite unprepared and tried to ram her but our commander was dubious about the result of a collision without our iron-shod beak and gave the signal to reverse the engines long before we reached the monitor as a result i did not feel the slightest shock down in the engine room though we struck her fairly enough the carpenter reported that the effect was to spring a leak forward lieutenant jones sent for me and asked me about it it is impossible we can be making much water i replied for the skin of the vessel is plainly visible in the crank pits a second time he sent for me and asked if we were making any water in the engine room with the two large worthington pumps besides the bilge injections we could keep her afloat for hours even with a ten-inch shell in her hull i assured him repeating that there was no water in the engine and boiler rooms we glided past leaving the monitor unscathed but got between her and the minnesota and opened fire on the latter 
the monitor gallantly rushed to her rescue passing so close under our submerged stern that she almost snapped off our propeller as she was passing so near that we could have leaped aboard her lieutenant wood trained the stern gun on her when she was only twenty yards from its muzzle and delivered a rifle-pointed shell which dislodged the iron logs sheltering the monitor's conning tower carrying away the steering gear and signal apparatus and blinding captain warden it was a mistake to place the conning tower so far from the turret and the vitals of the ship since that time it has been located over the turret the monitor's turret was a death trap it was only twenty feet in diameter and every shot knocked off bolt heads and sent them flying against the gunners if one of them barely touched the side of the turret he would be stunned and momentarily paralyzed lieutenant green had been taken below in a dazed condition and never fully recovered from the effects one of the port shutters had been jammed putting a gun out of commission and there was nothing for the monitor to do but to retreat and leave the minnesota to her fate captain van brunt of the latter vessel thought he was now doomed and was preparing to fire his ship when he saw the merrimac also withdrawing toward norfolk it was at this juncture that lieutenant jones had sent for me and said the pilots will not place us nearer to the minnesota and we cannot afford to run the risk of getting aground again i'm going to haul off under the guns of sewell's point and renew the attack on the rise of the tide bank your fires and make any necessary adjustments to the machinery but be prepared to start up again later in the afternoon i went below to comply with his instructions and later was astonished to hear cheering rushing on deck i found we were passing craney island on our way to norfolk and were being cheered by the soldiers of the battery our captain had consulted with some of his lieutenants he explained afterward that as the monitor had proved herself so formidable an adversary he had thought best to get a supply of solid shot have the prow replaced the port shutters put on the armor belt extended below water and the guns whose muzzles had been shot away replaced and then renew the engagement with every chance of victory i remember feeling as though a wet blanket had been thrown over me his reasoning was doubtless good but it ignored the moral effect of leaving the roads without forcing the minnesota to surrender as the merrimac passed up the river trailing the ensign of the congress under the stars and bars she received a tremendous ovation from the crowds that lined the shores while hundreds of small boats gay with flags and bunting converted our course into a triumphal procession we went into dry dock that very afternoon and in about three weeks were ready to renew the battle upon more advantageous terms but the monitor though reinforced by two other ironclads the galena and the naugatuck 
and every available vessel of the United States Navy was under orders from Washington to refuse our challenge and bottle us up in the roads. This strategy filled us with rage and dismay, but it proved very effective. Our new commander, Commodore Josiah Tatnell, was burning to distinguish himself, but he was under orders not to risk the destruction or capture of the Merrimack by leaving the roads, as General Hooger's division at Norfolk would then be at the mercy of the Federal fleet. Week after week was passing, and with it his golden opportunity. At last we went to Richmond and pressed a plan for a sortie upon the President. He returned one afternoon and ordered everyone aboard. That night we slipped down the roads and were soon passing Fort Monroe on our way out into the Chesapeake. Presently our Army signal officer began waving his lantern, communicating with our distant batteries, and then told the result to Officer Jones, who reported to Tatnell. We have been ordered to return, sir, he said. Tatnell was viewing the dim outlines of the fort through his glass and pretended not to hear. The order is peremptory, repeated Jones. Tatnell hesitated. He was of half a mind to disobey. Old Huger has outwitted me, he muttered. Do what you please, I leave you in command. I'm going to bed, and he went below in a high dudgeon. Tatnell was a striking-looking man, standing over six feet with florid complexion, deep sunken blue eyes, and a protruding upper lip. That he did not have a chance to fight was no fault of his. Our life on board for the weeks that followed was far from comfortable. We were within sight of the enemy, and at every movement of the opposing fleet it was clear away for action. Steam was kept up continually. Our cabins were without airports, and no ray of light even penetrated the wardrooms. There was nowhere to walk but on the upper grating. A modern prison is far more comfortable. Sometimes the sailors waited on the submerged deck, giving rise to the superstition among the darkies that they were the crew of the devil ship with power to walk on the water. Norfolk was now being evacuated, and we were covering Hooger's retreat. When this was effected, we were to receive the signal and to make our own way up the James. Norfolk was in federal hands, and Hooger had disappeared without signaling us, when our pilots informed us that Harrison's Bar, which we must cross, drew only eighteen feet of water. Under their advice, on the night of May 11th, we lightened the ship by throwing overboard all our coal and ballast, thus raising our unprotected decks above water. At last all was ready, and then we found that the wind which had been blowing downstream all day had swept the water off the bar. When morning dawned, the Federal fleet must discover our defenseless condition, and defeat and capture were certain, for we were now no longer an ironclad. It was decided to abandon the vessel and set her on fire. We took the Merrimack to the bight of Craney Island, and about midnight the work of disembarking the crew began. 
we had but two boats and it was sunrise before our three hundred and fifty men were all ashore cotton waste and trains of powder were strewn about the deck and executive officer jones who was the last to leave the ship applied the slow match then we marched silently through the woods to join huger fifteen miles away at suffolk still unconquered we hauled down our drooping colors their laurels all fresh and green with mingled pride and grief gave her to the flames and set the lambent fires roaring about the shotted guns the slow match the magazine and that last deep low sullen mournful boom told our people now far away on the march that their gallant ship was no more End of chapter 2